have the pleasure of introducing to you tonight Air Marshal Sir Victor Goddard, whom, as many of you know, had a very distinguished career in the RAF. I can't go through it to take too long. We want to hear what Sir Victor has to say, not what I have to tell you, but I think I should mention that early on he was commissioned in the airship R-36, which is going back some years. And after that he had many, many important posts. He was Deputy Director of Intelligence at one time. He was Director of Military Cooperation. He was a member of the Air Council for Technical Services. And uh, he, for some years he was Principal of the College of Aeronautics at Cranfield. So just with that brief introduction, I will ask uh, Sir Victor Goddard to give us his lecture. Well, Mr. Chairman, thank you very much. Uh, this is delightful surroundings, and I must say I'm astonished that so many of you kindly turned up. Uh, some may have been driven by some sense of loyalty. I hardly think by curiosity, because there's been so much put over recently. But all the same, I'm very grateful to you for turning up at all. I've been perfectly happy if it's been, you know, just one or two we could have swapped some yarns. Um, but of course, your society simply had to lay on this event. Uh, custom, respect, and natural inclination and duty all chimed to, together for this uh, jubilee celebration. Uh, I'm bound to say that Naylor, Naylor's a nailer. He nailed me. Uh, you've heard that one before, I expect. I acknowledge the honor of the occasion, uh, speaking to aeronautical historians about the history of the Royal Air Force, and I acknowledge the danger. Historians can be such tigers. Uh, that's really why I'm reading my script, partly because I don't want to wander away. Partly, I've got chapter and verse that I can say what I said. Um, the initial purpose of the RAF was to transcend the limited horizons of prejudice and tradition, to put the development of air power beyond the peradventure of sightless prejudice and crippling compromise. Prejudice and tradition are too soon built into every establishment, every established institution. The darker side of loyalty ever tends to enshroud the evolving spirit of the new idea of the new age, so that its thus imprisoned splendor can hardly, per ardua, come forth. Air power, as distinct from taking an air view, was thus enshrouded by the darker side of loyalty. I'll give you an example to add to your collection of the sayings of exalted sleepwalkers and incidentally to correct your historical record of precisely who invented the first bomb site. You will agree that the bomb site epitomizes the whole concept of air power. What I'm about to tell you then epitomizes, I think, the whole reason for the Royal Air Force being brought into existence at all. The scene is the captain's office in the Royal Naval College, Dartmouth, date 1912, May or June. The captain, the Honorable Victor Stanley, is reading a letter to two naval cadets aged 15. Sir, I am commanded by their lordships to refer to your letter of the 15th of March forwarding the design for a bomb site by cadets Robinson and Goddard. I am to request that you will command, that you will commend these cadets for their ingenuity, 
and inform them that their lordship see no application for the invention. I am yours faithfully. I am your, your obedient servant, I should say. Now, I do wish that one or two of you historians would have a look into and dig out the file in which that is recorded, because if their lordships saw no application, well, they didn't see it for a long time. Trenchard, as you know, I'm bound to mention him earlier, was an idealist, but he was also a pragmatist. I met him first at his headquarters in France on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, that was on the 1st of June, 1916. I had just come over to France with another naval sub-lieutenant with an airship. It was black. Uh, we were to take it in turns to drop agents as spies uh, beyond the lines by night and later on pick them up again. Um, airplanes did not then fly by night. Trenchard asked how high we could fly with fuel, with full fuel and two on board. Exaggerating by 50%, um, Sub-Lieutenant Chambers, who was my boss, replied, 2,000 feet, sir. Trenchard looked at me and he said, young man, you want your hair cut. <laughs> Um, not then, but by the time of Luce and, and Passchendaele next year, Trenchard knew that the only way of escape from the prejudice and traditions of sea and land power, land strategies, was by means of an economic air strategy. He did not want the wholesale amalgamation of the Royal Naval Air Service with the Royal Flying Corps to be attempted in time of war. He wanted the chiefs of staff to see the light and cause their services to pull together and to pull together and to plan together for a concentrated air offensive in depth. This was his idealism. His pragmatism forced uh, the chaos of amalgamation. He wanted to have some freedom from the system of spreading his squadrons like rations, so many to each army, so many to each corps, to each division, and so on. He wanted to be able to concentrate, as the Germans had been doing, at the place where effects were to be achieved. He wanted to, those effects to be vital and not merely diversionary, uh, as were the Gotha raids on London. They, they were diversionary. He did not want to initiate an altogether new strategy. He wanted to help his commander-in-chief in France to win the war in France. In 1917, Trenchard had one purpose, to serve the British Army in France, aiding its existing policy of attrition and penetration by a different kind of attrition and penetration, aimed not at the German Army, but at its industrial support and supply systems. Contrary to general opinion, it was not the war in France that caused the RFC, RNS amalgamation to take place, nor was it Smuts who first proposed it. It was the Gothas bombing of London that raised the demand, and it was General Robertson, CIGS, who put the thought on paper. On the 9th of July, 1917, Robertson wrote, we need a separate air service, but that would be big business. Uh, the time, he said, was ripe for a full-bottom department of state for air. Robertson was a pragmatist, a traditionalist, not an idealist. He was an escapist. He wanted to escape, he was tired to death, of the unending Army-Navy committees of Air Board and Cabinet wrangling over the resources for air and air action. It was not Trenchard and Haig who approved this plan for wholesale amalgamation. They both opposed it and were astonished 
uh, General Robertson, uh, General Henderson rather, the head, the Director General of the RFC, agreeing with Robertson to such a plan. Now, please don't think that I'm saying that Trenchard wasn't the father of the Air Force. I, what I am saying is that the mariage de convenance of the buxom RNAS to the lean and drawn RFC was not the birth of the RAF. It was the inception. As a marriage, it was one in name more than in fact. Cohabitation hardly took place. Neither party was at heart more than 1% willing, I would guess. The combined figures of the two services, a third of a million men, 23,000 aircraft, are impressive now. But truly, did the amalgamation itself shorten that First World War by one day? I doubt it. The momentum of the RFC and the RNS along their own lines of service was, so, was not so much to be, not to be altered much by the few remaining months of war. Officially, the legal inception of the RAF was the date when we all say it was, April the 1st, 1918, but the Air Force wasn't yet born. And there was no heat of fusion then. In fact, there was a distinct fall in temperature. Until then, some sympathetic regard, if not admiration, had always been extended from one of the flying services to the other, both ways. Some envy, too, existed. Mutual disparagement was natural and right. Each service had no doubt about its own allegiances, and the darker side of loyalty long remained unillumined by the light of perception. Since no appreciable heat of enthusiasm for or against amalgamation was generated in the RFC and the RNS, there was indeed no spiritual fusion. Those officers who responded to the exhortation to acquire the new light blue uniform with gold braid on the sleeves, and I was one such, earned in the ex-RNAS stations the soubriquet Lily Elsie's Boys, whereas the ex-RFC squadrons, they became known as Gladys Cooper's Own. Uh, although the Independent Air Force virtually came into existence in the form of number 41 wing RFC at Nancy in October 1917, the name Independent Air Force was not applied to it until May 1918. In fact, the Embryo Bomber Command, as such, was never independent. Soon it went under the supreme command of Foch. Not until the best part of two years later, on the brink of 1921, was the new conception of the RAF represented to Parliament as an organism in embryo. That was done by Winston Churchill, then Secretary of State for War and Air, in the form of the Trenchard Memorandum. Uh, the Air Force therein described had yet to be born. Its birth was like that of the Phoenix. It rose painfully from the ashes. It's for that reason that I make no attempt to extol the virtues and glories of the RFC and the RNAS. They had to die for the one and only Air Force to be born. The Trenton Memorandum publishes a white paper in December 1919 provided for the creation of a home-based striking force of, what do you think, two bomber squadrons. Uh, no fighter squadrons were in the plan. There was to be, for, for cooperation with the Home Army and with the fleet, the equivalent of about six squadrons, including seaplanes and flying boats. About 20 squadrons were to be based overseas. Now, all that was the pragmatic side of the plan, 
uh, meeting the demands of the established order of things. The idealistic side was in the provision made for the creation of a new material structure and a new mental outlook. The plan for permanent buildings of high quality, for new schools, for Cran Cranwell, for Halton, for technical specialization within the general duties branch of officers, in which the emphasis on continuous flying experience and flying fitness uh, was the sine qua non for command. Um, meanwhile, younger members of that new force, like myself, were mostly still mentally shrouded in the darker side of loyalty, not to say ingrained prejudice. As first officer of the R-80, Barnes Wallace's first great airship of his own design, building at Barrow when the war ended, I was sent to the airship department of the Admiralty to assist in the planning of the flight of the R-34 over the Atlantic to New York and back. I could hardly have cared less about what was then becoming of the RAF. My professional heart was in airships, and their future in world air communications, in world air transportation to be, and even as aircraft carriers. As a member of the Airship Rugger 15, I remember I scratched up to play Wakefield's first ever Royal Air Force Rugger team, we airship men, a very small bunch, uh, shared in the exhilaration of trouncing the Royal Air Force by, what was it, 21 to 6, I think. We did not like the RAF, um, nor did most people then, George Roby in particular. Uh, aeronautical historians do not <laughs> need reminding of the dominance of the balloon floatage aspiration which persisted in practical aeronautics for a century and more. The father of aeronautics, Sir George Cayley, had declared a century before the R-34 made its majestic double crossing of the Atlantic, the 27 souls on board, that on a great scale, balloon floatage offers the readiest means of aerial, aerial locomotion. A great scale seemed to me to require that existing airships should merely double their then dimensions and become about 1,500 feet long, uh, about as big as a modern tanker, you might say. Um, that would be 10 times the length of an SS blimp, 100 times its air resistance, 1,000 times its lifting capacity. If a blimp in 1915 could do a 15-hour patrol with two men and armament, who was to say that super zeppelins in a few years' time would not be carrying a hundred or so passengers, a paying load of many tons, or maybe a couple of dozen flyable aircraft for attack and defense against whatever? Now, all the, after all, uh, my, in my own airship, the R-24, well, it wasn't my own, it was only first officer. We carried a fighter, a camel, uh, for self-defense. Of course, great airships had not uh, then uh, got a great safety record, but helium was to come. And who could say that airplanes were safer? Airships carrying their own fighters could be as safe as anything over the open sea, so we thought. No use advancing then theories about bigger and therefore better airplanes, the principle of flotation allowed airships to grow to the whale of a size, um, whereas large aeroplanes soon became enormously elephantine. Uh, what had already happened, by the way, to the four-engined Handley Page monster? Had it not fallen to bits in the air? 
At about the time of which I'm speaking, Professor Southwell put the matter in a nutshell. I think he was talking to the society when he said, Flight in the air, a thing of buccaneering adventure for the midge and the mosquito, has already become too strenuous for the orc and the ostrich. Uh, he went on to show that with an aeroplane it was a case of the heavier, the faster, the heavier, and so on. Heavier than air flight, theoretically, was then doomed to small dimensions both in size and range. The future of long range and big freight belonged to the principle of balloon floatage, lighter than air. Theoretically, I said. But airships had inherent heavinesses which were not measured by science. Zeppelins in the public mind were emblematic of night peril, of baby killing, even of cowardice. They were associated with bombing non-combatants, with fire, disaster, and the destruction of our islandhood. In England, airships had such a much worse psychological background than the day-bombing gophers. The other heavinesses were relative to handiness. The flying spirit aspired to speed and to maneuver. If there was to be a military future for the airship in Trenchard's view, it was for the Navy to establish it. He claimed for the Air Force all the servicemen concerned with flying and all the equipment that flew, excluding only the airships themselves. The Navy could keep them all and pay for them. Uh, he guessed that the Admiralty would soon not want to do that. Uh, quite soon, indeed, my last ship, the R-36, pioneer with the R-34 in mooring, equipped to carry 50 passengers in spacious luxury, was civilianized. The age of Kipling's mooring towers and of the air control and of air control by airships was coming true. We of the R-36 were employed by the Director General of Civil Aviation. He built a mooring tower for her beside London Airport at Croydon, and I landed her there once only, hauling the ship down by a stream by a steam traction engine. Then the civil aviators blew up, and the mooring tower was pulled down. And not long after that came the R-38 disaster. The achievement of double crossings of the Atlantic by the R-34 in 1919 and by the R-100 ten years later were outstanding feats of airmanship, but they were shrouded by the heaviness of the R-101, an epic in the darker side of loyalty. Thereafter, the kite balloon alone remained to undignify the cult of aerial floatage by the staticism of Colonel Blimp. Remember, he was associated with them. Long-distance flights and trailblazing began in 1919. These caught the public fancy and distracted attention from the chaos of the rundown and reorganization. During this year, 1,500 permanent commissions were awarded, about one in 20 of the officers total of one year before and the new Air Force rank titles also came into use. Trenchard had already declined firmly to accept the designation of a rear marshal for himself. <laughs> uh, but <coughs> after, that was after he'd had a great battle with uh, Lord Curzon and others high in the establishment to get approval for the use of the word marshal at all. This venerable designation, marshal, is not appropriate to young aviators, said Lord Curzon, and cited sonorously the Marshal of the King's Household, the Marshal of France, Field Marshals of the British Army, and the Provost Marshal, said Trenchard in the background, rather sotto voce. And that settled the matter. 
But in the end, King George V did decline to become named as Marshal of the Air. Within the next five years, the shape and structure of the Air Force was revealed basically as a training system, operationally as a pacifying force, socially as a magnet for men of initiative and adventure and vision, politically, and you know what that can mean, uh, as a co-equal with the Navy and the Army, diplomatically as a counter to French dominance in Europe, imperially and internationally as the prime exemplar of air power and prowess, or prowess, whichever you like, in the air. The divine gift of imagination, as the poets Blake and Coleridge well knew, is at the basis of all creation. Imaginativeness was inherent in the Air Force from the start, as indeed it had been all along in this society and in the aircraft industry. But imaginativeness has two aspects. There's daydreaming and there's dynamic imagining into reality. Uh, there was much of both kinds. It was the dynamic thought with its elements of purpose, will, and integration that achieved. The other thoughts impeded. The flair for seizing upon ideas that could be realized as part of the imagined evolving pattern and causing those ideas to be realized was Trenchard's forty. He did not invent new ideas, he adopted them, or adapted them. The age of long-distance air adventure was coming in. Trenchard backed the good ideas that came from the industry and from the service and broke records. He wanted public support. Unprompted, for instance, Bill Helmore invented the idea of the Air Force showing its paces to the public at Hendon. The idea was put up to Trenchard. He adopted it. It turned into a reality a tournament, a pageant, a display. It achieved its purpose. But Trenchard didn't only want mass public support, he wanted informed public support, intellectual support. E.L. Howard Williams, then at Cambridge, invented the University Air Squadron idea. Well, that suited. Trenchard took it up. Next, he wanted the support of businessmen and county men. Hence, the auxiliary squadrons first mooted amongst ex-airmen in the city, Noted by the Lord Mayor's son, Bowater, first commander of an auxiliary squadron, first to give his life to that creation. Schneider invented the idea of a speed trophy. Trenchard accepted the idea, enabled it to fire creative imagination into the reality of the means of victory. But long before all that, what opportunity was it that he took that made the Air Force come into its own? He took the opportunity of the Cairo Conference of 1921. And this is where phase two, I think, begins. Since the turn of the century, there had been trouble in Somaliland from the turbulent chieftain called the Mad Mullah. For 20 years, he had outwitted all attempts to suppress the murderous and pillaging activities of his supporters. In 1920, the Air Force took over and in three weeks cleared the Mullah's fortresses, and that was a little war, a quick one. It was the first of its kind, a pointer. At the Cairo Conference on the Middle East Mandated Territories soon after, March 1921, Trenchard's plan for Air Force control of Mesopotamia, i.e. Iraq, was accepted, not only because it showed so great a saving on the army plan, but also because the relatively swift and bloodless principle of air control had then recently been demonstrated in Somaliland. The principle in land operations is to destroy the land forces, that's people, and occupy land. 
the principle of air control operations is to frustrate by denying or, den or destroying resources. That's not people. The latter of this the, the latter is the principle which can be and was effectively employed in, uh, in underdeveloped countries and with turbulent mi minorities, beginning with Iraq in 1922 and extending soon to Aden, and when army measures failed in Waziristan, to that country too. But in India, the darker side of loyalty to established tradition shrouded the air control principle and reduced the squadrons allocated to the government of India to the status of poor relations. Despite that, however, when finally at the end of 1925, the army having suffered 1,300 casualties in Waziristan, and the situation was worse then at the than at the start in 1919, that's about six years, the Air Force was given independence of action there. Almost bloodless denial of air, uh, bloodless denial air operations ended the trouble in two months for the loss of two men. But if any one sphere of operations and control more than any other really established the Air Force as no other than the Air Force, it was Iraq. It was, I was fortunate in, in being given command of it of Mosul in 1929 uh, when one squadron of Wapitis, half a squadron of armored cars and two companies of levies uh, ranged over the plains of northern Iraq and the mountains of southern Kurdistan. Now, the principle of air control was vindicated in the termination of the mandate. Um, but at that time, in 1932, the turbulent Sheikh Ahmed of Bazan received orders from the air by loud hailer. It took him a little while to comply, but in June he surrendered to the RAF control operations in Iraq, and then that system came to an end. I'd just like to mention incidentally that during those operations, I, um, one of my chefs broke his undercarriage taking off, and we'd, we'd had too many people hurting themselves by spilling uh, wapitas, and so I ordered him when he got back near to Mosul and his uh, gunner to jump out by parachute. That was the first time uh, that that was ever done. It's just a historical point. I'm not actually patting myself on the back. I nearly got court-martialed for it. Um, well, now, the development of military aviation to go back to 1918 had, by that time, pursued, vaguely, five criteria <coughs> for aircraft development successively. The first military choice was that a commander should see beyond his own horizon through the eyes of his airmen. The sole initial justification for military flying had been the demand to see. The second military requirement was to prevent the enemy from doing just the same thing, and that brought in weapons. The third choice was for speed in informing commanders on the ground or on the sea, and it involved installing wireless telegraphy. Uh, the fourth was to, was to destroy enemy capabilities on land or at sea. Now, uh, the fifth, air transportation, had hardly established itself as a military criterion by 1918, a uh, military design criterion. These five military requirements, seeing, denying, uh, communicating, striking, and carrying, have remained the functions of the Air Force for 50 years.
but the evolution of the aircraft by which those purposes have been served belongs to the history of science, technology, and production. This vast and wonderful field of endeavor, of strife, of harmony, inspiration, and heroism has recently been epitomized in historical accounts published by the Society in its centenary journal, and so I shall hardly attempt even to pay tribute to those great achievements. There are two generalizations, however, for me to make. The Royal Air Force has continually participated in the making of this history of technical evolution, and the technical creators of all that has enabled the Royal Air Force to make its history have in spirit been with it. They've been with the Royal Air Force. Uh, since I cannot do justice by briefly re reviewing facts of historical happenings, I shall risk impertinence and speak of what I think I know from my own experience and contemporary hearsay. The lighter side, and I'm not going to be funny now, the lighter side of aviation was represented figuratively by Richard Southall when he said, life in the air, a thing of buccaneering adventure. The lighter side demands smallness, compactness, maneuver, simplicity, and the sting. Uh, my typist, when she typed this, wrote, and the string. I thought that was rather good. Um, that is, it, that in a way epitomizes the flying spirit which mainly animated the pioneers of military aviation. I would cite, uh, not to choose an Englishman or any famous character of our own, I would cite a German flyer, Udet. Um, a world idol of a flyer he was, but as impecunious as he was brave. And this man, Udet, despite his inner feelings, strangely became responsible for the technical equipment of the German Air Force in the mid-1930s. I got to know him then in Germany. He came to England with a group of Air Force generals late in 1937 to see the RAF. I was in charge of the excursion. Their leading bombers at that time were the Dornier 17s, swift, high-flying monoplanes with half-a-ton bomb load. Our leading bomber was the Hayford, a slow biplane with a possible one-ton bomb load. Rudet wanted to talk to me alone about bombers. By ordering an extra car for the final farewelling drive to Croydon Airport, I got a Rudet alone by himself. He pointed out um, his beliefs about bombers. For him, and I think for all of his type of flying men, bombers should be designed for lightweight, speed, maneuver, simplicity, and not more than two engines. Double the number of engines, he said, and you more than double the rate of uncertainty. Don't you agree? And of course I did. Uh, at that time, I was personally concerned with the preparation of the air staff specification for what was called, it was a memorandum to persuade the government, for what was called the ideal bomber, a four-engine monoplane to carry four tons of bombs over a radius of action of at least a thousand miles. Naturally, I was concerned to reinforce Udet's determination to keep his bomber force to light bombers. <laughs> I found all sorts of convincing arguments to show that however hard his aeronautical engineer pundits might drive him to go bigger, his own experience was what, was what he must go by. Uh, <laughs> he used to be in Richthofen's circus, you see. And as for us, um, had he not seen our single-engine battles, and they were our dominant bomber, and the lumbering Hayford, which could only fly by night, it was so slow. To Udet, at that time, Russia was our future enemy, not England. He regarded us as bound to become allies. He was greatly relieved in mind to gather from me that the air staff were set upon a light bomber policy. 
who did suicide, regrettably, in 1943 was chiefly in consequence of that wrong determination. Failure to develop the strategic bomber was a root factor in the failure of Germany. The contrary was a highly significant factor in the Royal Air Force. Now, why did we in the RAF keep so long to the small biplane? I propose to show that this was because of the same lighter side influences. In flying spirit and structural strength for weight, in wing loading and even in wheel loading. After three years at Cambridge and at the Imperial College of Science, I went to your chairman's uh, great institution, the NPL, and was put to measuring the drag of the German thick wing uh, section under W.L. Cowley. Uh, I think we produced a pessimistic comparison with the RAF-15, um, and, and thus we played straight into the hands of the biplane devotees for many years, because it became rather crystallized uh, what was said about that thick-wing section, I think called the RAF-34. In part, our overlong adherence to the deep girder principle, too, the deep girder principle of the biplane was because airmen with the flying spirit loved maneuver, and aeronautical engineers loved lightness. The biplane embodied all that belongs to the lighter side of heavier than air. Other English factors contributed. In pre-Royal Air Force days, in the days of the RAF factory, monoplanes had been absolutely barred because they had proved to be relatively dangerous. The English are apt to give a dog a bad name that sticks. There was a post-war financial and disarmament stringency which lasted for nearly 20 years, and there was England's green and pleasant land to be considered in the matter of wheel loading on grass airfields. In all, uh, the simple biplane was the preference. Fixed wings, no variable camber. Fixed propeller blades, no variable pitch. Fixed undercarriage, no retraction gear. Engine starting by hand swinging or external hucks, no self-starter. The lighter side of heavier than air persisted and dominated until World War II. Uh, the Royal Air Force lived on grass and mud in England, on mud and dust in the Middle East, and on a shoestring in India. The seagoing side, in general, as distinct from the glamorous particular, you can think of several of those, was subordinated to the land-based side of the RAF. This is not the kind of history that we've been accustomed to hear lately, the kind that looks back with admiring and grateful pride to the ad adventurous in thought, the adventurous in flight, in science, technology, and to the gifts givers of great prizes. Those individuals, those teams, certainly were imbued with the spirit of the Royal Air Force, and they made glorious history. Maybe they were in it, of it, by it, with it, inspiring, leading, evolving the equipment and the techniques of the Air Force, and they certainly made history. But I find it hard to regard, for instance, the aerial conquest of Mount Everest as an example of the proper representation of the Royal Air Force as a fighting service. Nor can I include the many mercy errands which have made the peacetime image of the RAF in chivalry. Now, to leap ahead for a moment and to make my point, uh, on the other hand, the epic of the bombing of the Myrna Dam, uh, although still in the stunt team category, if you like to put it like that, is essentially and thoroughly Air Force history because it was directly concerned with the application of air power accurately to a target system in an economic field, war production in the Ruhr, 
in military circumstances. In the initial background of that operation, there is uh, quite a bit of unrecorded history, a bit of which I'll now rattle off. Um, Wallace rang me one morning after a night uh, bombing in London. Uh, he was down at Weybridge as usual and said, could we meet for lunch at my club? And I could bring one or two, or could I bring one or two air staff planners? He had something important to propose, and his proposal was, as you may guess, that um, we should break some dams of reservoirs with special bombs. Uh, seeing the four of us with our heads together over the lunch table, Tedder butted in to say, this is evidently a conspiracy. Well, it was. Uh, rightly or wrongly, after lunch, I took Wallace to see Charvel. Charvel made it clear that he would oppose any such project. Perhaps he knew, I wonder, how very determined a pioneer can be. Uh, Wallace had a faculty of disliking his opponents. Uh, this rebuff made him set his teeth. Uh, but when the operation was over, three years later, may I inquire, by the way, if anybody's hearing anything at the back? Okay. Is it all right? Uh, well, when the operation was over, three years later, Wallace said to me words to this effect. It wasn't that I was particularly keen on breaking dams. My object was to postulate a good air staff argument for carrying a bomb so big that no existing bomber could carry it. <laughs> I was keen on bigger and better bombs in bigger and better bombers. Uh, when Wallace suggested that uh, lunch meeting, he did not know of the inspiration combined with determination which caused uh, Dobson with hives, uh, with hives uh, aiding and abetting, to convert the moribund Twin Vulcan Manchester bomber into the four Merlin Lancaster. That gave Wallace the means of carrying his spinning bomb and the future carrying of his tall boy and grand slam, bombs that were bombs, that fall true and could penetrate. They penetrated more than German warships. They penetrated and blew up the tradition of the capital ship. Um, but I've gone far ahead of my story. Uh, I thought I'd just get that one in. In the long, barren years of technical stagnation, the whole of the development policy of weaponry in the Air Force was handled by a staff section called ADR the Arm. You may have heard of it, under a wing commander. And the whole of the armory of guns and bombs, such as it was, was virtually just residue from World War I. The bombs all came from old-time Woolwich Arsenal. They fell from bomb racks in the air, and as they did so, they looked like sausages going on holiday. Uh, that stroke of Wallace Guile uh, for manner dam-busting uh, to spur the air staff into bigger, better bombery enabled the Air, the air Force to eliminate, at last, the dogma of the battleship. Uh, materially, uh, this I'm going back now to my, where I was in the early in the 1920s. In fighting hardware, we had lagged. We had lagged first behind France and Italy, and then behind America and Germany. And England, in fact, wasn't really coping. There is no uh, sense in in saying that we shouldn't have been leading in those years. We should. But the headline-catching events served brilliantly to change public opinion and technical performance. Now, they were the background of the history which the Royal Air Force was yet to make, but for years and years the lighter, cheaper side of material prevailed. But not so with the men. Uh, Cranmore and Halton 
attracted the salt of the earth. It's just my opinion, but it's other people's opinion too. Um, never a pioneer myself. I've lived close beside many such. Um, they have to have four qualities. The heart to receive, the mind to perceive, the grace to believe, and the guts to achieve. They mainly don't have a very happy life. Uh, because most of the rest of us are going through life backside first, only seeing what has happened and has passed. That's not a crack at historians, by the way, I just thought of that. Um, <laughs> not what is clear. We don't mostly see what is coming and what ought to be and could be. The radar is cited as an example to the rule. There was no resistance to the translation of radar into reality. But in fact, there was resistance to receiving the very idea that caused the right question to be asked, the question that ultimately, almost too late, stimulated the perception of the means of radio location for aircraft. The question could and should have been asked by the air staff much sooner. The requirement for airborne radar, for radar and beamed aids to navigation, was not posed when they might have been. Uh, why? Because the air staff was not thinking, not at all. They were thinking too hard, but about something else. They were thinking about survival. They did not ask the scientists questions because the best brains in the air staff were perpetually engaged for years and years on the struggle of keeping the air staff in existence, the struggle to meet day-to-day -day needs and demands from a worldwide dispersed system of military imperial influence and the struggle to overcome all kinds of difficulties in every sphere of natural and human activity. For example, it was difficult and dangerous to fly by night in bad weather. But in good weather, navigationally, if you can call it that, it was easier to fly by night than by day because of the distinctive, I might call them galaxies, of lighted towns that showed you the way. They were, well, it was too easy. Uh, some of us demanded that our bomber navigators should be trained in night navigation over the featureless desert, deserts of the Middle East. Techniques for beaming radio were, were then in vogue and would certainly have been evolved for bombing navigation had we gone to the featureless country for night navigation. And then another strange blindness of ours was in peacetime was that relating actually to the art of seeing. Um, it was to that end, and solely to that end, the military aviation was dedicated and directed originally. The art of seeing what you need to see. But yet when World War II was on us, we were virtually blind in those regions where it was our major business to see, i.e. into the defended territory of our enemy. In 1939, we lacked all prospect with our then equipment of swift effectiveness against Germany by any means, by land, sea or air. But most notably to us was this true of reconnaissance. It was also true of bombing by day or night or of air defense by fighter or by guns. But notable though all that was, it wasn't noted. We didn't really know how true it was, I mean, because we tend in the air um, to be a bit optimistic and uh, we like to keep our tails up. Uh, however, I won't go on with that. This society will hardly need to concern itself with the inner history of the RAF in matters of personal uh, or training or organization, nor with the part it played in international affairs. But I must, as a matter of elementary common sense, remark that the potential strength um, 
uh, for the Royal Air Force was uh, later to be revealed in war, uh, as it was to be revealed, was already inherent in the factors which I've mentioned on the positive side. Nor am I going to burden you with figures. I had a lot to do with figures when I was head of the European Intelligence Section, uh, or rather the European Air Intelligence Department in the Air Ministry before World War II, and I know how misleading figures can be. But I would just like to say on that point that despite all assertions to the contrary, the figures that we produced about the German Air Force and about the Italians, for that matter, were remarkably accurate all the time. Uh, it's been convenient to suggest that um, people weren't warned, but in fact they were. They just didn't want to believe it. Until the spring of 1919, there was no question of sending an expeditionary force to France in the event of war with Germany. We were to send an air striking force only, 15 squadrons of single-engine battle uh, light bombers. These squadrons had not the range to enable them to reach targets in Germany from bases in England. The situation was derisory, and Goebbels, Hitler's Minister of Public Information, derided it. He said, if you remember, England is prepared to fight to the last Frenchman. Uh, saying that caught on in France, and in the summer of 1939 it was decided here that an expedition must be sent, after all. Um, and with it, of course, only our component uh, of reconnaissance and fighter squadrons. At that time, the Air Force was already committed to what were still primarily Army and Navy roles overseas in Egypt, India, the Mediterranean, the Far East, and we had our primary commitments in Iraq, Aden, and Palestine. You'll understand, therefore, that uh, all those um, overseas commitments and the Coastal Command and the Fleet Air Arm and the Army Cooperation Group were, in a sense, extraneous to the main Air Force committed to outmatch the German Air Force. The home-based, uh, what was called Metropolitan uh, Air Force, and the bombing aspect of it was what everybody was thinking about when Baldwin, years ago in 1934, made his famous declaration of intention to maintain an air force at least as strong as the strongest air force within striking distance of our shores. Of course, we didn't do that, but we continued to act as though we had. Uh, German Air Force in 1939 outmatched the bomber and fighter strength of ours by, say, four to one, and our aircraft production potential they outmatched by no lesser proportion. I was with the Gort, I was with Gort, the Commander-in-Chief, uh, in the Battle of France, and had to draft his signaled appeals for more fighter squadrons. I well remember making the demand which led to Dowding's demand to meet Churchill with his cabinet and with the chiefs of staffs. That meeting, uh, in response to Dowding's demand, was on the 15th of May, and he made his famous stand against any further loss of fighter strength to France. He envisaged the coming fight over our own shores, a battle that would otherwise be lost in irretrievable defeat. Uh, by that, at that moment, in my view, there was the most critical turning point in the history of the RAF, the greatest moment since April the 1st, 1918, and it marked the end of the subservience of the air to land and sea. Now, here I must give some figures. Historians have been unfair to doubting on figures. Indeed, so was Churchill. The figure agreed as the minimum fighter force requisite for the defense of Air Great, uh, Great Britain against the German Air Force, based in Germany, was 52 squadrons. 
against that German bomber force based in Germany, Belgium and France, as they actually were when the time came, the minimum requirements would have been much more than 52 squadrons. Dowding, in fact, agreed, when he had seen a little of the success of the eight-gun fighters, to be content with a minimum of 32 squadrons. Dowding never agreed to a minimum of 25, as Churchill mistakenly declared. And as I'm on figures, let me say a word about eight guns. I'm shy of mentioning names except to correct history in crucial matters. Rafe Sawley, squadron leader then, retired air marshal now, was a chief instigator of our eight-gun fighters, and I think you all know that. He took his memorandum and the supporting drawings for the hurricane made by Cam's drawing office to Ludlow Hewitt, who was DCAS, for his approval. The drawing showed six guns. Sawley had greatly dared in putting as many as that in, and he was frightened he wouldn't get it past the DCAS. Make it eight, said Ludlow Hewitt. I just want to record that. It was so. Uh, perhaps that was one of the greatest moments in Air Force history, for the battle difference between eight and six was surely more than those two figures would suggest. Uh, when the long-drawn Battle of Britain was at a climax, I watched one summer Sunday from a meadow near Biggin Hill that most titanic contest of the 15th of September, 1940. And as if to make me feel as though I was really in it, I got showered with some spent uh, cartridges. Um, that was the turning point, uh, like uh, the like of which this country had not passed since Waterloo. Uh, I wish, in fact, as I'm talking about turning points, I had um, uh, decided to make this lecture about turning points. It might have been briefer. I would have mentioned, too, and I come to think of it, that uh, there was a turning point when Whittle, who was demanding to go uh, and train to be a flying instructor, he was fed up at the technical side while he was at Henley, and I persuaded him to go to Cambridge and get on with his job uh, in the engineering labs there. Uh, so I won't exactly claim credit for it, but it was a turning point in his life, and perhaps in ours. Anyway, at that time, uh, where I was at just now, the strategic bombing uh, uh, era had arrived at last. The strategy whose validity had so long and so been persistently been denied, the strategy which the RAF was originally created to serve, in 1940, the RAF was engaged in countering it, the German version of it, um, of uh, an air strategy uh, of a kind. Well, now, Denmark, Norway, Luxembourg, Holland, Belgium, what else, France, um, were all order, uh, I mean, order combat and vanquished. Our army in tatters and disarmed, the navy engrossed defensively by enemy submarines. There was none but bomber commands, Wellingtons and Whitley's to smite the enemy at home. But the Air Force did not lack for enemies at home besides the German Air Force. Although um, Germany wasn't, in, as though Germany wasn't enough, the army, headed by Margeson, who was then Secretary of State of War, and Alan Brooke, CIGS, came at us in the rear by way of Winston Churchill's private tank parliament, as he called it. Um, I was present at 10 Downing Street as Director of Military Cooperation when Brooke, to everyone's surprise except Margeson's, came out with his hitherto unreported demand that with the re-equipping re of the British Army, it should also 
be given its own purely army air force with a first line strength of, what do you think, 2,200 aircraft. He said that the German air force was really an appendage of the German army which had shown how battles must be won by blitzkrieg. Churchill bade me give the answer. He looked at me and said I was to speak. Some unseen power enabled me to say quite forcefully, because I was pretty scared, that because German strategy was land strategy, and because the Air Force was primarily aligned to that strategy, Germany would not effectually develop a true air strategy, and consequently would lose the war. This opinion appealed to Churchill more than Brooks did. Um, no more was heard of Brooks' takeover bid for the Air Force from that day to this. I've never mentioned that in public at any rate before. The army did not love the Air Force then. Uh, uh, they had felt deserted by the Air Force in France and at Dunkirk. Uh, they didn't know the truth about it. German air battles over France, with none but the RAF opposing, because the, air, the French and the rest were destroyed and down, won for them a pyrrhic victory in the skies for the Germans. One more such victory, and they were lost. Wilfred Freeman was my post-Dunkirk boss. He was vice CAS in the Air Ministry, and I asked him for a directive. Your job, said Wilfred Freeman, is to do all you possibly can to help the army, short of giving them anything. <laughs> uh, the, first of the, the fact of the situation at that time was that all depended on the Air Force power to frustrate Germany's Operation Sea Lion, the invasion plan, and at the same time to frustrate night bombardment of our cities and help the Navy kill the submarines. The air help that the Army most needed then wasn't in material, it was in thinking of a, out a simple direct system for air support communication. That system we devised together. It paid off handsomely at El Alamein, and we helped them build the Airborne Division and all that that implied in great gliders, in parachuting, and in transportation, and the establishment of Transport Command now expanded to a combat force embracing all airborne cooperation, Air Support Command. The revival in the RAF of the forgotten arts of rocketry was another great feature in the gaining of ascendancy on land, at sea, and in the air. And if we include in that category the German evolution of V1 and V2 weapons, we see another great turning point in Air Force history. It is not my purpose to study further the evolution of the Army or the Navy by enhancing, by the enhancing of their attendant air power support by the RAF. The prime essential for all military operations on land and sea uh, is twofold. The gaining of the establishment of ascendancy over the enemy air force and the observation of the enemy by observation from the air. Neither of these could be achieved when the war began, but soon, thanks to the genius of one Sidney Cotton, the highly efficient photographic reconnaissance unit was created. In consequence, the V1 and V2 plans were crippled before they were fully arrayed. Although by that time the American and British air forces had achieved air ascendancy in all theaters of war, we might still have been defeated by the vast potential of the German V weapons. They constituted a strategic surprise of great magnitude, and it's largely due to Cotton that they were defeated. I mention that because nobody's ever heard of his name hardly, except in rather disparagement. 
The air ascendancy that at the end was the most decisive of victory was that which was represented by the bomber. Whether it was the close support bomber, the long-range bomber, the depth charge bomber, the tall boy bomber, or the atom bomber, that last, combined with rocketry, has vindicated the lifelong aspiration of air power as the means for dominating and overcoming war. But as ever, there is vast resistance to the acceptance of the obvious. The convention of the conventional has yet to run its course. Uh, since World War II, the Air Force has passed through turning points whose significance is still conjectural. The last in which I personally took part was the Berlin Airlift when transport commands of the USAF and the RAF combined under the shadow of atomic weapons to show that deterrence does deter. To me, that operation proved that Russians love Russia much too much to risk destruction. The same applied to England when Suez fizzled. Some may say that the Suez failure was spelt in dollars, but my belief is that the, it was deterrence by the Russian H-bomb that deterred. It deterred America, and consequently, because America was deterred, we were also deterred, maybe by dollars. The fact that um, nuclear bombs have gone from overground to underground and are now going underseas, the early warning systems for anti-missile missiles are going from ground arrays to satellites. The fact that flying has become ballistic and computerized and that social policies have cramped our style, all these are facts that seem to indicate a nemesis for all that caused the Air Force to ascend. The crowning fact, of course, is England. Uh, with, great, uh, I mean, with great respect to anybody else who isn't English, England does rather tend to dominate the situation as far as we're concerned. England is England for weal or woe. So tolerant, conservative, so unperceptive of the virtues of her strengths, so prone to pander weakness. Trenchard, who made the service what it was, what it is at heart, had a soft spot of virtue which tempered all his battling. I asked him when, I, when he came to stay with me in Washington what made him win where his American counterpart Billy Mitchell had so miserably failed. For Mitchell's plan to make a separate United States Air Force had led to his court-martial and eclipse. Trenchard replied, I always wanted to make friends of enemies. Mitchell always wanted just to shoot them. Yeah. The Royal Air Force, in its 50 years of life, per ardour, always per adventure, has indeed risen to the stars of the military establishment. It has made friends of enemies. Now, um, there's not just several administrations, there's one administration of the armed forces. The Navy and the Army have become, per ardour, per adventure, almost sister air forces with the Air Force. An airman has become the chief of chiefs. The air is primus inter pares with land, sea, and as in nature, naturally. Climate, uh, climate of opinion, has had so much to do with all our making and unmaking. The Royal Air Force, in its 50 years, has led the way to making more remarkably unthinkable, at least. That in itself is certainly a move 
ad astra. Well, Sir Victor, I must say that personally I'm very glad, as you put it, that I nailed you down to this job. This job of lecturing to us, giving us your personal view, and telling us many facts which have not yet been revealed elsewhere. And I hope you will allow us to have that manuscript in order to get it published, because there are some things there which I think should not be lost. Now, Sir Victor would be very glad to answer questions, and I'd like to ask him one myself to start with. Let's get the ball rolling. You mentioned Wallace's big bomb. Now, a connection to that big bomb was there not a meeting somewhere in Wales where a number of Air Force people went and a certain number of scientists and they were experimenting as to what the bomb could do if it was placed 50 yards, 100 yards, and so on, off what is intended to destroy. And one scientist, I think it was Capon, said, look here, let's make us one experiment. Let's place the bomb right against the mound that we're going to blow up. And much against the wishes of the Air Force people present, it was done, and it was very revealing, and from that, Wallace went on with his bomb and the bombing of the dams. Is that correct history? I that that was so. Uh, there was another great thing, of course, about the um, blocking of the railway tunnel soon after that same bomb. I don't remember that it was used very much other than one or two, but one particularly spectacular stopping operation in the latter part of the Battle of France, uh, I mean the second uh, Time. I'm afraid that uh, uh, I wasn't much wanted in the most active theatres of the war. I was abroad a good deal of the time. I used to occasionally nip home and have a look. But uh, I can't tell you about Wallace's later bombs from experience. I think your revelations about what you did in Iraq and so on early on, which I, which I was not aware, and how important the Air Force was in keeping control after the mm -hmm. being shown that something could be done in Somaliland, was it? Uh, it was yes. It was after the first, after the the Mag, Mad Muller's um, operation, which wasn't much heard of. But um, I don't think we ever got a very good press in those days. The idea of using bombs on poor innocent natives um, was a thing which troubled people a great deal. But in fact, we used—I know it was very hard luck in a way because uh, why should they pay taxes to the Iraq government? But nevertheless, that was the law, um, and we used to bust up their mud huts. Well, it took them a while to put them back again, but we never really hurt anybody. It hurt their feelings, of course. Well, I mustn't uh, keep all my questions to myself. Now, wouldn't, would not some of you like to get up and ask Sir Victor some queries, some questions about these early days, in which he took such a great part? Ah. Tell us what became of the Cadet Province who went with you to that epic meeting well, in 1912. Uh, I would just like to come clean about that. Um, I wasn't the uh, designer or inventor of the bomb site. Um, this Robinson was um, L.M. Robinson in my term. Uh, he was called Lousy Robinson for a very good reason. If he didn't wash much, he was always late. He was usually asleep. He was the dreamy type. 
But you know, you don't want good evil thinking inside. And strange to say, his mother took him flying when he was uh, 14 years of age, and uh, it was an impressionable t time to go flying. Um, well, being continually in disgrace, when he invented his bomb site, he brought it to me, it allowed for forward speed and drift, um, 